0: We are not free-range Christians, which means that we seek the Lord and we worship Him in spirit and in truth. Specifically, the spirit-inspired truth of the Bible. There, by the spirit, in the spirit, we meet God. We encounter God. We experience God's work in our hearts, the deepest place of the soul as a spiritual work in the inspired Bible. So we begin today seeking the Lord's renewal. In the Old Testament prophetic book of Isaiah, it includes several invitations. They're really urgings, even commands, to come to the Lord one of them is in chapter 2 which we are using as the theme or the title for this whole time in our book of in the book of Isaiah ever how long it takes us come let us walk in the light of the lord that's what we want god to lead us into at the outset of These sermons in Isaiah, this morning, I want to ask and answer several questions that will help us be introduced to the book of Isaiah, but also to begin to hear its message. And we're going to take chapter 1 today. Stand with me in honor of God's Word. The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz... Which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful Nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They they are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint from the sole of the foot even to the head there is no soundness in it but bruises and sores and raw wounds they are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil your country lies desolate your cities are burned with fire even in your presence foreigners devour your land it is desolate as overthrown by foreigners and the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should, be, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings, incense, is an abomination to me new moons and sabbaths and the calling of convocations I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly your new moons and your appointed feast my soul hates they have become a burden to me I am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands I will hide my eyes from you even though you make many prayers I will not listen your hands are full of blood Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient you shall eat the good of the land but if you refuse and rebel you shall be eaten by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken how a faithful how the faithful city has become a whore she who was full of justice righteousness lodged in her but now murderers your silver has become dross your best wine mixed with water your princes are rebels and companions of thieves, everyone loves a bribe and runs after gifts. They do not bring justice to the fatherless. And the widow's cause does not come to them. Therefore the Lord declares, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will get relief from my enemies and avenge myself of my foes. And I will turn my hand against you and will smelt, you, smelt away your dross as with lye and remove all your alloy and I will restore your judges as at first and your counselors as at the beginning and afterwards you shall be called the city of the righteous a faithful city Zion shall be redeemed by justice and those in her who repent by righteousness But rebels and sinners shall be broken together and those who forsake the Lord shall be consumed and they shall be ashamed of the oaks that they desired and they shall blush for the gardens they have chosen. For you shall be like an oak whose leaf withers and like a garden without water and the strong shall become tender and his work a spark and both of them shall burn together with none to quench them. This is God's word. You may be seated. This morning I want to ask and answer five questions. Four very quickly. The fifth one we'll land on to get to the message of this first chapter of Isaiah and really the whole book of Isaiah. Question number one. Who is Isaiah the man? Verse 1 He's the son of Amaz. Amoz is in the history books, 2 Kings chapter 19. The point to be made is that Isaiah is a real person. The man, Isaiah, is a real person. He lived and preached about 700 years before Christ. He lived in real time. A time when Israel, the nation, was divided. It gets a bit confusing, but here's how it works. There's one nation called Israel, but then they went through a civil war and they were divided. And the northern part became known as Israel. The southern part became known as Judah. The northern part was located mainly in the city of Samaria. The southern part was located mainly in the city of Jerusalem. Isaiah addresses Israel... Samaria and the neighboring nations in this book, but the focus of Isaiah's ministry and preaching is, as verse 1 says, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Built into Isaiah's name is Yahweh is salvation. Now, this would be a good time to explain something in your English Bible. If you'll look very closely at your English Bible, the word Lord is used And it refers to, in this case, it refers to God's covenant name, Yahweh. You will see that the L is a capital letter in large print, and the O-R-D are capital letters in small print. When your English Bible uses that way to use the word Lord, then it's describing God's covenant name, which is Yahweh. It's the name that God used of himself when he called Israel out of slavery in Egypt and he said, I am who I am. I am the God of steadfast love and grace. I am the covenant God. So when you see capital L and then capital ORD, you understand this to be Yahweh. This is explained, by the way, in the introduction to most of your Bibles. The point is that Isaiah's name is means Yahweh, the covenant God, the personal God of his people, is salvation. Isaiah is also, he's a real person in real time, he's also a real prophet, which means he's an authentic prophet. He is designated by God to be one through whom the Lord spoke to his people. Question two. What is Isaiah? the book that you're holding in your hand verse 1 it's the vision it's a prophecy in words that isaiah saw which means that we see truth through words judaism and christianity do not have images For the very reason that no image can contain God. We see through words. It's a vision. The book of Isaiah is prophetic vision. Words that form for us a vision of truth and reality about God and ourselves and God's ways. Isaiah, the book, or Isaiah's collected sermons and sayings like an anthology which lays out several connected themes. The themes of the Lord's covenant with his people. The sin of God's people against him and against each other. The Lord's pronouncement of judgment which is a severe discipline and then in it his call to repentance and his promise to purify. The theme of renewal but also the theme of anticipation. Because all through Isaiah, we will hear of the anticipation of a Redeemer who will come. Of one who will come and bring newness through this Redeemer. What we are holding in our hands is a book of prophecy, which is God's word, God's message through his prophet. Question three. When is Isaiah? When is this man and this book ...on the scene in history. Verse 1 tells us... ...in the days of four kings of Judah... ...you will want to read at some point this week... ...2 Kings beginning in chapter 15. You'll want to read that... ...because you'll read about these kings... ...that are mentioned in verse 1. In these days... ...these were days of... ...some spiritual faithfulness... ...but generally speaking... ...the days of Isaiah... ...and these four kings were spiritual decline. The trajectory that would lead to God using the Babylonians to conquer and control Judah and Jerusalem and eventually exile her people. That's what's coming. The process of sin and decline and prophetic pronouncement and exile was in a history that was much longer than Isaiah's life and ministry. But Isaiah prophesied. And his prophecy covers that pre-exile, when God is warning his people. We're reading about it today. His prophecy covers the exile and the return from exile, the post-exile vision of the return. The prophecy of Isaiah covers a future day, And a day yet to come. So Isaiah spoke. When is Isaiah? Isaiah spoke in his time and for his time. He spoke of a time 100 years later when there would be an exile and a return. He spoke of a future time, a time when Jesus Christ himself would be here and come. He spoke of a final time that has not yet to come, the same time we read about in the book of Revelation. And so, as we go along these months ahead in the book of Isaiah... We're going to have to remember and figure out along the way what time we're in. That's when he is. He's timeless. Question four. Why Isaiah? Verse two. Because the Lord has spoken. Well, who is the Lord? In fact, that question is asked in Isaiah. As pagan nations and pagan kings stand up and say, Who? Yahweh, the Lord, who? If he's a local deity, if he's the creation of a culture, if he's an imaginary friend, why bother? Or at least you don't have to bother. But the message of Isaiah, which we'll have to decide whether or not we believe, is that the Lord is God. The Lord is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, the consummator of all things, for all things, over all things. The Lord is alone and only in his sovereign and saving Power and grace. The Lord living and active with whom the people of Isaiah's day had to do and with whom we have to do. He has spoken. That's why Isaiah. The New Testament, Jesus and the apostles tell us that he is still speaking through what he has spoken because Jesus quotes Isaiah. The apostles quote Isaiah. They build on Isaiah. It's John Stott who coined the phrase that we often use here at Grace Community Church. God still speaks through what he has spoken. Both parts are necessary. We hear God speaking through what he already spoke in the scripture or else we would be free to use our imagination and our best judgment to figure out what God is saying. And given our human nature we would determine that God says exactly what we want Him to say. Given our human nature, we would determine that God is exactly like what we want Him to be, not what He has actually said and who He actually is. God still speaks through what He has spoken. And God still speaks. We do hear His voice in the words of Scripture. Otherwise, we are reading an irrelevant unnecessary ancient text still is a word that gives us hope still we have a link to what is written here as I wrote about last week in the Friday in the words of grace JI Packer we're building on his idea that in the bible We don't always connect with the events and the circumstances and the culture, but our link is to God himself. And we would add our link is to ourselves. We see ourselves in Isaiah 1. And our link is to God's grace and the call to faith. That's why Isaiah. Now, number five. The question that we're going to park on to get us into this text and get us in to Isaiah is this. What is the message of Isaiah? Particularly, what is the message of Isaiah chapter 1? Let's prepare ourselves for a good message of salvation of saving and restoring and renewing and new-making grace. Let's begin, let's prepare ourselves for that good message to begin with hard message. A message of exposure, indictment, judgment, and discipline. But also a message of call to repentance as the way into grace. The call to faith. What's challenging about the message of Isaiah is that it's repeated over and over. The themes in Isaiah go over and we come back. We think we're, we we want a linear book, don't we? We want Isaiah to start and say it once. The Lord is your God. You've sinned. He'll judge you. He'll discipline you. Repent and trust. He'll restore you. He'll make all things new. The end. But he doesn't. He repeats himself, but he is on a trajectory. He is moving forward. Moving forward to the one. Ultimately, Isaiah is about a person. The one who makes redemption and restoration and forgiveness and renewal even possible. And who makes all things new. Namely, I'm going to go ahead, spoiler alert. Jesus Christ. So as the themes are repeated, remember we're moving toward Christ. Verse 2, the message begins, and the Lord speaks to his children. Now I said this is the fifth question, and in the fifth question I'm going to give you five points. Number one, verse 2, the Lord has children. Children, I have reared and brought up. He calls out, Isaiah does, for all of heaven and earth to pay attention and to hear. The Lord is the governing one over all of heaven and earth. So, heaven and earth, listen, hear, and heed. Heaven and earth, you're being called upon to witness a scene where God speaks to his children. The Lord has children. In a broken, sinful, and rebellious world, God raised up children. Through one man, his name was Abraham. And his children became the Hebrew children. They were eventually enslaved in Egypt... And God delivered them and said, I will be your father, and you will be my children. And they were known as the children of Israel. And he led them through Moses, and he led them through Joshua, and eventually he led them through King David, whose rule was based on a covenant with God that God made with him and said, on your throne will be a king forever. God became their Lord, their covenant God, their Father, and they are His children, and they were to be a light to the nations. They had a special relationship with God among the nations. They were to be the light so that the nations would come to God through them. Children, the Lord, reared and brought up in this way. Now, this is one of those times right here at the beginning where we have to pay attention to time. Isaiah is speaking of the nation of Israel in time, in their time. God's calling them children. Children I have reared and brought up. But did the Lord cease to raise up children and to rear up children in Isaiah's day? History continues, as Isaiah will show. A servant will come. He will suffer and he will redeem, and he will be a savior. And this servant to come, again, his name is Christ, he himself will claim to be the preacher of the good news and the savior of the people. And through him, John 1 tells us, there are many children added to the family of God. Children of God, born of the Spirit, By the death of Jesus Christ and faith in him, God has children today, Jews and Gentiles alike, through faith in Jesus Christ, one new man in Christ, the church. The message is for the children of that time, Judah and Jerusalem, and for the children of this time, the new covenant people, Jew and Gentile and all kinds of Gentiles in the church. God has his children. Point two, verse two. The children have rebelled against the Lord. Now in a moment, and throughout Isaiah, we're going to see how these children rebelled and the pitiful state that their rebellion left them in. But for the moment, just hear and feel the weight and the sorrow and the insanity of these words. Children, I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Verse 4 They have forsaken the Lord, they have despised Him. Do we even need to mention the human? Parallel of earthly parents grieving the rebellion of earthly children to feel the weight of this. Jesus did, though. Luke 15, when he told about the prodigal son, he tapped into both the rebellion of God's children against him and the rebellion of of earthly children against earthly parents and I wonder today if even now I'm praying today actually if even now in the mention in the very mention of the rebellious children of God the gracious Lord that there would be a conviction that begins to set in and bring some to repentance and through repentance back to God and maybe even back to earthly parents. Again, we consider the time, then and now, the time element. Lest we be tempted to think that only then, only then in the Old Testament, the Israelites rebelled. They were the rebellious children. Only then, let us remember that Jesus himself stood before seven real and representative churches in the book of Revelation... Chapters 2 and 3, and prophetically called out their rebellion. Church, how are we like children in rebellion against our Father and against His Son and grieving His Spirit? It's time to think about that. Oh, child of God, how are you rebelling against your father and his son and grieving his spirit? Even even if it's in the most subtle and passive-aggressive way, As we'll see in Isaiah, the outside can be cleaned up with the inside in in a passive, aggressive, subtle rebellion against God. Maybe it sounds like this. I'm not rebelling. I'm just taking a break. I'm just focusing on me. I'm just backing off for now. Withholding a bit from God and others. I'm just figuring things out. It's rebellion. Number three, third point, verses three through nine. The rebellious children are in a pitiful state before God and among the nations. A pitiful state. Verse three, he says that ox and donkey are better off before their master than God's own children are before him. Because his children don't know or understand or recognize his voice. How sad. Verse 4, he says, They are supposed to be a light to the nations. But they are such a sinful nation, becoming like the nations that they are estranged from the Lord. There were two covenant purposes of God's people. At least two. Number one was to know the Lord. (laughs) To know the Lord. They don't know Him, he says in verse 3. They don't understand. And their second purpose was to reflect the glory of God as a light to the nations. Both are lost due to their sin. Instead, he says in verses 5 and 6, they're like a sick body with open sores from foot to head. Now this is poetry. So it means something. It means his people are spiritually diseased. They are like an abandoned shelter in a vineyard or a cucumber field, left desolate, neglected, vulnerable, to be inhabited by whoever and whatever comes along. Their glory and their spiritual life and vitality and usefulness is gone. Verse 9 says, It's so bad that only the Lord's preservation Of a few survivors. That means a remnant. Only that keeps God's people from becoming like Sodom and Gomorrah. Do you know what that means? Utterly wicked to the point of destruction. How sad. Church. God's purpose for us in Christ is to be a dwelling place a temple of the Holy Spirit. God's purpose for us as the church is to be filled with the Spirit. God's purpose for the church is that we would be a light, a light to the nations, to draw the nations To Christ. In other words, our purity and our piety precede and lead to our mission. John Oswalt is a a man that I'm reading, a commentator I'm reading right now. I may quote him a thousand times over the next months. I don't know, but I'll start today. He said, Separation he means from the world, is not in order to keep the pagans out. Rather, it is in order to have a distinctive and coherent message to call the pagans into from the darkness. Yes, we want to keep out paganism from the church so that Hey, I'm using that word because he used it. So that lost people will have a gospel to come to when they repent. But a rebellious and even neglectful spirit prevents us from being such. And it leaves us in a pitiful state before God and in the world. Number four, verses 10 and following. Now we come to the actual sin, the acts of rebellion that corrupted the children of God. The children of God are corrupt in their worship. We see in this chapter two problems with the worship of God's people. I'll take them in reverse order from when they appear in the text. All the way to the end is the first one, verses 29 through 31. There's a reference there to desiring oaks and choosing gardens. What is that about? Isaiah is referring to the places of pagan worship. The religious practices of the nations around and the pagans, they would go to these places, certain oaks that showed strength and power and gardens that were supposed to flourish, and they would participate in their worship and sacrifices and immorality in these places. And we find in 2 Kings that even the kings of Judah were leading God's people To worship like this. It was a mixed worship of some of Judaism and a lot of paganism. Paul, when we come to the New Testament, is still warning of this in in 1 Corinthians 10. When he's warning the Christians against idolatry. When we come to God and to church on Sunday and try to appease him in order to get his favor... So that we can make, so that he will make our lives work out the way we want them to. We are worshiping like pagans. Let us come and worship the Lord. Let us worship the Lord as he says to worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us worship the Lord for his own sake. And let us worship the Lord as the Lord truly is. Second problem in the, with their worship is found in verses 10 through 17. It says they had forms of worship, forms of worship outwardly, but with hard hearts and persistent sin toward other people. Now, this is, this is um, I can't, it's, it's hard to believe this is in the Bible. I mean, it really is hard to comprehend what we're about to see. Beginning in verse 11. He says, you make your sacrifices, but I don't delight in them. Verses 12 through 14, he says, you come into my courts, my temple, and you keep your Sabbath and your holy days and your assemblies. But this has become a burden to me. This is the Lord speaking, not Isaiah. This is not a mad Isaiah. This is the Lord speaking. Verse 15, he says, your hands are spread to me in prayer, but they're stained with blood. The blood of guilt of trying to appease God and obtain answers to your prayers through sacrifices of animals without any heart, without true worship and obedience. And the blood of the people who you are refusing to defend. Again, John Oswald, religious actions were supposed to be a symbol of the heart condition. Religious actions here were contrary to their heart condition. We could also add to that, religious actions were never supposed to be a substitute for heart worship. Verses 16 and 17 tells us some actual sins that make their worship so offensive and rejected by God. The first one is injustice. They do not treat people justly. They don't treat people fairly, equally, according to the standard of God's law. Some were treated one way. Others were treated another way, depending on whoever's setting the rules, not by what God said. He rebukes their corruption that led to the oppression of people, people who were in charge. Verse 26, he mentions the judges. People who had the power were corrupt, and therefore people under their charge were being oppressed. Verse 23, he mentions bribery. In other words, favorable treatment was for sale, it was rampant. And what was the result? Twice he mentions it, that orphans, those who lost their fathers, and widows, those who lost their husbands, were vulnerable and were not given justice. They had no one to represent them and to see to it that they would not be taken advantage of by the people who were in charge with the power and corrupt. James, James 1, he said in the New Testament, he says, True spirituality is to care for the orphans and the widows. If we're acting corruptly, corruptly toward each other and toward other people. If we're sinning against one another. If we're giving preference to other people based on personal gain, which is bribery. If we're neglecting the truly needy. And then we come to worship the Lord. The worship, he says, is offensive. Offensive to God. James is certainly referring to these verses when in James 2 and 5, he rebukes those who are showing partiality and mistreating their laborers. So, time there in Isaiah's day, and now in our day, persistent sin. And any other rebellion against God, like these mentioned and any others that are rebellion against God, are devastating among us who are called the children of God. Number five. And finally, verse 18. The children are called back. Called back to reality. Called back to sanity. Called to the Lord who raised them up and reared them. There are two groups of people that are envisioned beginning in verse 18 throughout the rest of the chapter. One group are those who return. The other are those who continue to rebel. Both of them are addressed in an overarching message to the children. Which says that in this one group of people called the children, there are actually two groups one who are the true children and one who are not. Just like Jesus said in Matthew 13, that wheat and weeds will grow up together, but eventually they will be identified. The first group, those who return, verses 18 and 19, and then again in 25 through 27, he says in verse 18, Come now and be reasonable. Come be reasonable. You're God's children. Let it land on you today. If you profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a child of God. So be reasonable. Stop rebelling. Stop experiencing devastation. You don't have to. Stop offending your father and grieving his son and his spirit. Repent. It's the most beautiful word. Embrace it. Repent and return and trust, and you'll be clean, and you'll be forgiven, and you'll be restored. He says in verse 25, I'm going to purify you. I'm going to smelt away your dross. I'm going to remove your alloy. I'm going to purify you. Let the Lord purify you. He says he's going to purify his church. I think he's doing it. I think the hard days that churches have to go through in every generation. We're not alone. In every generation, churches have to go through hard days where we have to decide, are we going to follow the Lord or not? It's a purifying moment so that righteousness and faithfulness will once again dwell among us. Verse 27, we are redeemed through repentance. We walk through a door called repentance. Repentance. A door of faith, a door of returning, so that we might be redeemed and restored and whole and brought back. The grace of God is for you today. The grace of God is for you today. Come back. Wholeheartedly. Repent. But how does this work? How How does repentance get me to redemption? This is the riddle, isn't it? Someone called this the riddle of the Bible. That there's a holy God and there are rebellious people. And the holy God, by his own justice and righteousness, must punish rebellion and sin for for the very fact that he is so utterly holy and therefore sin is so utterly sinful. And that demand for justice puts those rebels in an awful state. But the Bible talks about forgiveness and restoration. So how? That's the riddle. How? There is a redeemer. And the repenter is not the redeemer. I don't watch lacrosse. I've never seen a lacrosse game in my life. But for some reason, yesterday, lacrosse caught my eye. And at the end of the match, on television, at the end of the match, the interviewer said to a lacrosse player, Now I know you made a mistake, but you made up for it afterwards. You redeemed yourself. And the guy said, Yeah. I'm so happy he did, but none of us do when it comes to God. There must be a redeemer. And Isaiah, in time, reveals a redeemer, a suffering servant who becomes the sin-bearing sacrifice for, on behalf of, in the place of the sinful rebels. It's chapter 53. Read it today, and by God's grace, we'll get there eventually. But does the servant have a name? Another prophet, we call him John the Baptist, named him. He said his name is Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. An an apostle, John, said that when Isaiah spoke these things, he did so because he saw Jesus. Jesus himself said from the book of Isaiah... He's talking about me. How are repenters redeemed, the riddle? By the Redeemer to whom they return in repentance and faith and trust in His name is Christ come to Him. The other group, verses 20, 29 through 31, those who remain in rebellion. If they don't return, they will show themselves not to be the children of the Lord at all. They will become like what they seek, a lifeless, barren tree, a garden without water. They will die. But you don't have to. This church doesn't have to. The church doesn't have to. By God's grace, we won't. We must hear and reason and return to be redeemed. So brothers and sisters, we're moving. Let's move together with Isaiah in the direction of renewal and of newness.